First John chapter number 5 tonight. And uh, I'd like to read uh, the last five verses or so, or the last six verses, excuse me, of the book of First John. It's hard to believe that 11 weeks ago we embarked on this journey through the book of First John. But the Lord has saw fit for us to go through the entire book. And I want to say it's been a blessing to me and an encouragement to me. I think we're always helped when we study the Word of God. Uh, we may not always recognize it, but we're always helped when we study the Word of God. And as we've gone through the book of First John, uh, we've seen the context of it and we've seen the content of it. We've seen who John was writing to and we've seen who John was writing about. And when we come to these last handful of verses tonight, I want us just to have our mind fixed on the impact that John's writing would have had to this little group of believers and the impact that I hope it's had on you and I. First John chapter number 5, and I'd like to begin reading at verse number 16. The Bible says, If any man see his brother sin a sin which is not unto death, he shall ask and he shall give him life for them that sin not unto death. There is a sin unto death. I do not say that he shall pray for it. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is a sin not unto death. We know that whosoever is born of God sinneth not, but he that is begotten of God keepeth himself, and that wicked one toucheth him not. And we know that we are of God, and the whole world lieth in darkness. And we know that the Son of God is come, and hath given us an understanding that we may know Him that is true, and we are in Him that is true, even in His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank You for this time that You've allowed us tonight. I pray, Father, that You would help Your thoughts to be concise and consistent as they proceed tonight out of my mouth. Lord, I pray that they would affect hearts in a way that would bring you glory. Father, I pray that you would accomplish in us that which is most needful for us to walk closer to you. If there's any amongst us, Lord, tonight that are lost and undone, show them their need of Calvary. Any amongst us that have drifted from a close walk with you, we pray that you draw them back to yourself and we'll be sure to give you the glory for it. Father, we love you. We love you because you first loved us. Teach us to love you more. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. I'll go ahead and tell you tonight that there's almost two separate thoughts that we're going to focus on this evening. And tonight I'm also going to confess to you that I do not have all of the answers. But I have learned that as you study through the Word of God, and I've touched on this uh, through this study, that there are times when there are good men that differ on points in the Word of God that, I'll just go ahead and tell you, are debatable amongst good men. Now, that's not to say that the truth of the Word of God is a debatable thing. We know that the Word of God is absolutely infallible, perfectly preserved, inerrantly inspired. But there are places where the interpretation of the Word of God is up to debate and discussion as to what a particular turn of phrase means or the impact or import that it has into our lives. John has been speaking in uh, the book of First John chapter 5 about some things that we can know. Now I'll go ahead and tell you tonight that there are some things in this world that we can know. There's some that would have us to believe that we cannot know whether we're saved or not. And yet the Word of God tells us that these things have I written unto you, verse 13, that believe on the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. 
The book of 1 John is a book of personal experience and absolute uh, truth and infallibility. It is a book of absolute knowledge. It is a book of absolute certainty and absolute confidence. John didn't write these things to cast doubt upon anyone's mind, but he wrote these things to give encouragement to those that did not have any doubt about who they had placed their faith in. We live in a world of relativity. At least that's how they'd fashion this world if they could. A world where everything is just relative to who you are and what you think and how you feel at that particular moment. But I'm encouraged tonight to know that there are some things that regardless of how I feel, regardless of what anyone else says, regardless of the trends and winds of this world, it's not going to change the truth of God's Word and the absolute certainty of our standing in Jesus Christ if we placed our faith in Him. And it's in the vein of uh, this context that John has been speaking. He uses the word confidence in verse number 14 when he says, This is the confidence that we have in Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He heareth us. And he's talking about our prayer life. He's talking about the fact that when we pray for things that are within the will of God and are according to the will of God, that we can have confidence God will hear and answer those things. And in verse number 16, he deals with an issue that has brought a lot of discussion amongst good brethren, a lot of discussion amongst bad brethren too, amen? Uh, but it's this topic of sinning a sin unto death. Now, like I said, I'll go ahead and tell you that there will probably be folks in this room disagree with me. I know there are folks in the theological spectrum that disagree with me and some that agree with me. But I'll tell you tonight, as I read the Word of God, what I believe that that means. If I got to heaven and found out that I was wrong about it, I don't believe I'd have any grounds to shake my fist at God. For I'm aware that there are some questions around this issue. But I want to do my best tonight to try to speak to you on what this sin is. I do not believe that it is a particular sin, but rather is a category of sin and the impact that it has. And then the second part of the message tonight, I want to say a word about the closing statements that John makes. Now, the only way that we can understand anything from the Word of God is from the Word of God. The Word of God is its own commentary. Now, I'm all for good books that you can buy and get. I mean, if you were to see my study, i got more books than I'll read in ten lifetimes. Uh, sometimes I think my wife gets a little put out with me over it, too. I've got more books than I could read in ten lifetimes. And they're all valuable and it's all a good thing. But the greatest commentary on the Bible is the Bible. And if we approach the Word of God with the understanding that God said what He meant and God meant what He said, then we'll gain more understanding through trying to examine exactly what it is that God said than we will trying to examine what other men have said that God has said. And so notice the uh, unusual phrasing that John uses. He says, if any man see his brother sin a sin which is not unto death, he shall ask and he shall give him life for them that sin not unto death. There is a sin unto death. I do not say that he shall pray for it. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is a sin not unto death. Now, as we read that passage, there's a few questions we have to ask ourselves. One of the questions is, what is meant by the word death? There are two types of death in the Word of God, primarily. There's the death of the body, and there is the second death that the book of Revelation speaks of. 
Now, if we're to compare Scripture with Scripture and gain an understanding of this, I always get a little, uh, a, a, a little amused by brethren that try to argue Scripture with Scripture. You've seen it before. Uh, if you spend any time on Facebook, one thing Facebook's good at is getting folks fussing and arguing. Amen? And if you spend any time on it, you'll always see folks that get into biblical debates and uh, a person will say, well, what about this Scripture? Another will say, what about this Scripture? Another will say, what about this Scripture? There's a part of me that wants to, if I could, just blow the whistle on the whole thing and say, let's wait a minute here. Because Scripture A agrees with Scripture B, which agrees with Scripture C and Scripture D and E, F and G and H and I and J, and we'd run out of alphabet letters. See, the Word of God is perfectly fallible and absolutely harmonious in its message. You really cannot argue Scripture with Scripture because it is a self-defeating prospect. It's as though you're saying, God said this. No, God said that. God said all of it. So what does it mean in light of each other? Now, if we were to take this to mean the spiritual death of someone then in doing so, we would have to dismiss and ignore a vital biblical doctrine that is well substantiated all through the Scripture, which is the absolute eternal security of the believer. So this cannot be talking about a spiritual death or the second death. Because the Bible teaches clearly and plainly that once a person has been saved, they cannot be unsaved. They are in the Father's hand. I've heard some folks say, well, uh, you know, Revelation says He'd spew you out. Well, I'm not in His mouth. I'm in His hand. Amen. And uh, the Bible says uh, that He has uh, measured the span of the universe in His hand. I've heard some folks say, well, I'll take myself out of His hand. Well, good luck with that. Amen. You better get started now. And even if you get started now and had a hundred lifetimes, I don't think you'd make it because His hand's so big and so broad that He measured the span of the universe with it. So this cannot be talking about a spiritual death because the Bible says if a man see his brother sin a sin, which is unto death. Now, some would have us to believe that this is the unpardonable sin or this is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit as is spoken about in the book of Matthew. And yet I find that based upon that very same premise that a person can't lose their salvation, that any sin that could not be forgiven in any way, shape, fashion, or form could not be committed by those that have accepted Christ. We could have a whole debate on the unpardonable sin and we won't take the time to do it tonight. So this is not synonymous with blasphemy of the Holy Spirit or the unpardonable sin or any of those things. This is a sin that Christians can commit that will not result in spiritual death because once he has been passed from death unto life, the Bible says he shall not come into condemnation. So we've already learned that this is speaking of a physical death. And this is speaking of a sin that a believer can commit. Now, some would say, well, preacher, the wages of sin is death. And I absolutely believe that. And yet we understand that those wages, while at certain times there is a physical application to that, that that primarily is speaking of the spiritual death. And John goes to great lengths to help us to understand that he's not using poetic language to tell us that every sin is a sin unto death because he says in verse number 17, all unrighteousness is sin and there is a sin not unto death. Some would have us to believe that this sin is the same sin that was committed by the fellow at the church of Corinth. Some would have us to believe that this is the same sin that Ananias and Sapphira committed. Some would have us to believe that this is the same sin that Moses committed and the reason he couldn't see the promised land. And while I'll go ahead and tell you that I understand their argument, it's a pretty good argument, I have a problem with that. 
My problem is this. Whatever this sin is, that's a sin unto death, had to be readily recognizable to that little group of believers so that they could determine their actions in light of it. While reading commentaries, I, I heard one man who, who has some good things to say sometimes, but, uh, you know, he's like Mr. Schofield. Sometimes uh, Mr. Schofield will say, omit this. And uh, when he says that, you just omit Schofield, amen, because your King James Bible is right, <laughs> just like it is. Uh, but I heard one man that tried to change the word pray in verse 16 to the word inquire. And while I am aware that the word pray and the word inquire do have a lot of strong ties, my Bible doesn't say thou shalt not inquire of it. It says, I do not say that thou shalt pray for it. So this has to be a sin which a person can readily discern whether it's a sin unto death or not. Now, here's my opinion, and uh, I said the other day that Lester Olaf, you say that opinions are the cheapest things in the world. Everyone's got one. But my opinion is this, that when it speaks of a sin unto death, it's speaking of a sin in the flesh and of the flesh that will, by its natural consequences, lead a person to death. You know, there are some sins that will not. Pride in and of itself, I mean, unless you just get arrogant and someone knocks you across the head, amen, pride in and of itself is not going to cause you to die a physical death. Selfishness would not cause you to die a physical death. But the Bible does teach that sins like alcohol, alcohol's a sin, don't you believe that? The Bible says that wine is a mocker and strong drink is raging, and whosoever is deceived thereby is not wise. There's lots of folks laying up at UT Hospital uh, with, their, uh, with their liver uh, serroded and corroded until they're at the point of death because they've lived a life as a drunkard. And that's the Bible word for it, by the way, is drunkard. There's lots of folks that have sinned in that way. Uh, there's plenty of things. I think one of these days God's going to straighten a lot of us Baptists out on gluttony. Amen. Probably me before anyone else. But I believe that what John is saying here is this. That when it's within the will of God, that God has the capacity and the desire to heal us of the sicknesses and ailments. When it's within His will, that He will do that. And that we should pray for God to do that for our brethren and for those around us. I believe that God heals. I don't believe that Benny Hinn heals. Amen? I don't believe that uh, Oral Roberts healed. I don't believe that any man has the capacity to heal. And these faith healers, it's funny, they always go to third world countries, but I've never seen one of them in a hospital. Amen? Uh, I don't believe that man has the capacity to heal, but I know that God has the capacity to heal because I've seen God heal time and time again. John is speaking in the previous verses about us praying and asking for things according to the will of God. And he's enlightening us in verses 16 and 17 as to an aspect to the will of God that is not often talked about in this day that we live in. Now, I've had people come up and talk to me about very uh, extraordinary things that they claim that God has done. Uh, visions that they've seen, dreams that they've had, things of that sort. And you say, preacher, what do you think about that? Well, I think this. I, I do think that Paul said he was seen last of all of me. Uh, I do believe that's still true today. But as far as some of these extraordinary supernatural events that people say happens, I don't know whether it happens or not. But I do believe that because God does not choose to do it for any and everybody, that he has not set a precedent in Scripture in this dispensation of grace that we live in, lest he be bound by his word to perform those things. By the same token, 
Does that mean that God won't heal a drunkard of his liver problems? No, I don't believe that means God won't do that. I believe it's that we can't expect God to always do that. Does that mean that God cannot heal uh, the smoker of his lung cancer? No, God's able to. Oftentimes, God does do that. But God's not bound to do that. You see, when I read this passage and it says there is a sin unto death and it speaks of a sin unto death, it makes me think of two things. One of them is unto death in the sense of a consequence. A sin that by its natural ramifications will lead a person to physical bodily death. But I also think of it in a chronological sense. And that is a sin which is unrepentant and which is perpetual and persistent up to the moment of a person's death. In other words, does God have the capacity to heal the drunkard? Yes, sure He does. Will God do that from time to time? I'm sure God will. But I have a hard time believing that God will heal the drunkard while He's still got His bottle in His hand and He's unrepentant about His sin. You see, John is letting us understand something about the way that God deals and the way that God works and the way that God heals. And what he's trying to do is get this little group of believers to understand that it's worthwhile to pray for God to heal, but God will not force His workings upon a person's life. If they don't desire it, if they don't want it, God won't force them to accept that. He says this in verse number 16, There is a sin unto death. Some would say that's denoting a singular sin, but I don't find that sin anywhere in the Bible, and I don't think God's playing hard to get. I think if if what was meant here was a singular sin... That's unto death. I believe God tell us what that sin is. God hasn't told us what that sin is. And so uh, I don't think that's necessarily what he's saying there. He says, there is a sin unto death. I do not say that he shall pray for it. Isn't it interesting the way John phrases that statement? He doesn't say it's wrong to pray for it. But he says in the context of this passage, I do not say that he shall pray for it. Now, is John offering, and don't listen, don't string me up yet, listen, hear me out, is John saying that he's offering something only of his personal opinion? It's possible that was John's mindset, I do not know. There were times that Paul made the statement, he said, this speak I, not the Lord. And yet we understand that God was speaking through Paul in those instances. And those statements that Paul makes were just as inspired as John 3.16. And so John could have phrased it in this way because he felt like he was offering something of personal opinion. Whether he was or not is irrelevant to the discussion because it's still inspired. It's still the Word of God. But I believe he's saying it and phrasing it in that way because he has exhorted them to pray for those facing health difficulties and giving them the confidence that if it's within the will of God, God will hear, God will heal if it's His will to do so. And it's almost as though, John, within this context, and let me see if I can place it in modern-day Appalachian American terms, okay? It's almost as if I was talking to you and said, Hey, listen, you pray for that person. God's able to heal that person. Have this confidence that when you pray, God will hear you. But now listen, a person that is purposefully destroying the temple of the Holy Ghost unrepentantly, I wouldn't say that God would hear and answer that prayer. You see, that's language we would maybe be a little more familiar with. 
Does that mean God will never do it? You may come up to me after the service and say, Preacher, I had an uncle, I had a grandfather, I had a this, I had a that. I'm not saying God never would heal in those circumstances, but I'm saying this, and I believe this is what John is saying, that we cannot necessarily have that expectation. When a, perp- when a person is squandering and harming the temple of the Holy Ghost that God has given him, uh, I don't think it's fair to expect that God will supersede their free will actions and rescue them in the eleventh hour. John gives these teachings and gives this truth. Some of you, you can come up and hit me afterwards if you want to. I, I don't think there's anybody that wants to, but uh, I'm sure there's people in this room that disagree with me about that. Uh, there's certainly people in the commentaries that do, and uh, I've, I've learned very quickly just take the Word of God over what any commentary or anybody else says and uh, leave it with that. John then begins to give us some closing statements. Some, uh, a synopsis, if you will, of the teaching of 1 John. Now, we must remember that as John wrote the book of 1 John, he was writing, combating a facet of, do- of Gnosticism in that day. Gnosticism is the, uh, is the claiming that we have an extra scriptural revelation uh, from God. A lot of that exists today in people, preachers claiming they have a special revelation or God told them something he wouldn't tell you or I. And uh, that's always existed. It existed in John's time in a particular facet of this. Uh, docetism was what John was writing, combating the heresies that docetism set forth. And of these three heresies, and some of you, if you've been with us for 11 weeks, you could probably say them before I say them. Uh, but those of us that haven't been with them, I believe it'll be worthwhile just to mention what they are. Uh, they believe that they were at a higher level of moral superiority in such a way that they had divorced the actions of their physical body uh, from the, the consequences it would have upon their spiritual well-being. They believe they sinned just like you sinned. They just didn't believe it was sin for them to do it. Very akin to the mentality that we have in the world today that we live in. What's right for you may not be right for me. What's wrong for me may not be wrong for you. That's the mentality of the world that we live in today. But to believe this, they had to believe a secondary heresy, which was the belief that everything physical was evil and wicked intrinsically and inherently, and everything that was spiritual was good and righteous and wholesome and holy intrinsically. And that sounds good, you know, that's sort of the yin and yang that this world uh, talks about. But uh, really, at the end of the day, there's a lot of problems with that heresy because you have to deny the incarnation, the uh, resurrection. You have to deny the physical creation of this world uh, by God. And so they had a problem with the incarnation. What were they going to do? If they believed everything physical was evil and everything uh, that was spiritual was good, what were they going to do about Christ, the Son of God, God manifest in the flesh? Well, the way they tried to handle this was to claim uh, that Jesus was a human being, fallible and imperfect like you or I, and that uh, the... Uh, boy, listen to that thing. I'll just you pretend it's thunder. Amen. Probably will be for long anyway. And that, uh, that Christ was a spirit that descended upon him at his baptism, departed from him before his uh, crucifixion. Now, we know those are heresies. John has addressed each of those individually. But now he's going to give a synopsis of these truths in the next four verses. And it's uh, summarized, and each uh, phrase is dealt with by the phrase, we know. As I said a moment ago, this is a book of certainty. It's a book that helps us to know some things. And he speaks of three different truths. Notice it. He says, we know that whosoever is born of God sinneth not. But he that is begotten of God keepeth himself, and that wicked one toucheth him not. 
As we've read through 1 John, we've seen how that uh, John talks about sin in two separate aspects. He talks about sin in the individual commitment of those sins when he says that, uh, uh, that if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father. If any man saith that he hath not sinned, he's a liar. But then there is the phrasing that's used, sinneth or committeth. And this carries the idea of a perpetual lifestyle of sin. John is not saying here that the child of God is never going to mess up. Uh, All of us know that we mess up, that we're frail, that we're flesh and bone, that we do things wrong and we make mistakes. If you're here tonight and think that you never sin, uh, we just need to find the right person to ask about it. There's somebody to tell on you, amen? We all sin, we all mess up. But John says as a synopsis to the teachings of this book that one of the things that we have learned concretely is that the believer is uh, marked and is characterized basically by a life of perpetual walking with God. It's not to say that we don't mess up, that we don't sin, that we don't get backslid, because there's times when we do. But it's to say that when we do sin and when we have sin in our lives, it creates a misery and a sorrow in our life. It creates a disruption of fellowship and communion with God. And that if enough time passes, God will take us out of this world if we've lived in sin long enough, defeating the purpose for which God keeps us in this world, that we might be a light to a lost and dying and dark world. And so John is not saying you're never going to sin. He's saying this, that those that know God, you can tell it by the way that they live. And I believe tonight that those that know God, that you can tell it by the way that they live. Uh, That's not to say that there's not folks that get backslid. Of course folks get backslid at times. But by and large, uh, you know, it doesn't take a uh, degree in rocket science to determine who really knows God and who doesn't. There's folks that talk about God all the time, and yet their life is absolutely characterized by corruption and carnality and sin. There's a good chance that they've never met God if they live a life in that manner. And he says that we are of God. He says, whosoever is born of God sinneth not, but he that is begotten of God keepeth himself, and that wicked one toucheth him not. I was thinking about this verse in light of our sermon Sunday night on the book of Job. And I was thinking about how that God, almost in concert with Satan, brought things to pass in Job's life, used Satan to accomplish his sovereign means and will. And I don't believe what John is saying here is that uh, Satan has no capacity to affect your life. But I think what he's saying is that uh, those that are begotten of God belong to God and Satan can't do anything he pleases with them. And it's a blessed truth tonight that whatever we deal with, God had to allow it before it ever gets to us. Those that belong to the Lord are in a different family than those that don't belong to the Lord. The lost person, Satan can do whatsoever he pleases with because they are his child. But those that have been born again have been born into the family of God. They don't belong to Satan. And if Satan is to have any impact in their life, it can only be because God has sovereignly allowed it to take place. That wicked one cannot reach out and touch them in and of himself. So we have a basic truth established here, that this moral superiority uh, that the Gnostics were claiming, that we can live in sin, but it's not sin to us. John says, no, 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 that's not true. Those that are born of God don't live in sin. Uh, Those that are not born of God do live in sin. There are two different categories. There are two different families. And by and large, uh, the characterization of their life can tell you which family they belong to. 
Lots of folks talk about God today. In fact, that's one of the most popular things to do today is to talk about God, to talk about the Bible, to talk about religion. But you can tell a difference between a man that knows the author of this book and a man that doesn't. You can tell a difference between a person that really knows God and a person that doesn't. And I'm afraid that oftentimes when we have questions about people and their salvation condition, I wonder oftentimes if it's not just wishful thinking that keeps us from outright proclaiming that they are lost and in need of the Lord. The truth of the matter is, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Not he should be, not we hope he's to be. He is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. It doesn't say he's a perfect creature, but it does say he's a new creature. And a change will take place in a person's life when they get to be saved. Notice the next statement that John makes here, verse 19. He says, And we know that we are of God, and the whole world lieth in wickedness. This is an encouraging truth because we oft feel overwhelmed in the world that we live in, don't we? Doesn't it feel sometimes as though the whole world is against us? Can I tell you why that is? Are you ready? It's because the whole world is against us. You say, that's narcissistic. No, that's biblical truth. Biblical truth that we are part of, as far as this world's considerations, part of the minority. We are not part. I know people like to talk about the moral majority, but I, I don't see where the majority is, is as moral as it used to be, at least, anymore. The whole world lieth in wickedness. There's no question that there is a satanic conspiracy in this world that we live in. There's no question that though there may be some remnant of morality in society today, at least some, uh, some sort of scrap of it, that by and large, the world is satisfied to do without God. It was no different than in John's day, though. You'll often hear people say, well, it's so hard to witness now. People, It's just people are worse. No, people are just as lost uh, in John's day as they are today. They were just as in need of Christ in John's day as they are today. I'm aware that society may have acclimated itself to confrontational witnessing and they may have figured out the right answers and they may know how to at least get you off their case. But they're still just as lost today as they were in John's day and vice versa. Even in John's day, the whole world lieth in wickedness and today is no different. But we know that we are of God. He's going to say here in a moment in verse number 20 how we know that. But it's important for us to understand that this, this dynamic and this ratio has never changed. Uh, those that, uh, that truly know God have always been in the minority. Always. And uh, just as the Bible said that narrow is the way that leadeth unto life everlasting and that broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, that's true today like it's always been true. Now, sometimes we get a little excited if uh, one of our favorite celebrities or TV personalities get up and say something about God. But don't fool yourself for one moment. That's not to say that everyone in Hollywood, California is on their way to hell. I still think the majority of them are, and probably a good chunk of those in Knoxville, Tennessee, too. But just because they're talking about God, that doesn't mean they know God. That's really the question. We talked on in Bible study on uh, Monday night about what Paul said, that we know God or rather are known of God. Lots of folks can talk the talk, but do they have a relationship with Him? John says, we know that we're of God. How do we know this? Look at verse 20. And we know that the Son of God is come and hath given us an understanding that we may know Him that is true, and we are in Him that is true, even in His Son, Jesus Christ, 
This is the true God and eternal life. If I could pick one verse that sums up the entire book of 1 John, it would be that verse. For it sets forth to us the basic foundational teaching and truth of this entire book. We know that the Son of God is come. Now, you say, well, there's no debate about that. Well, maybe not in this room. Uh, maybe there's less of a debate in this part of the country than there is in other parts of the country. But don't fool yourself for one, thing, uh, one moment in thinking that everybody believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Because that's just not the reality of it. And lots of folks that talk about Jesus Christ don't even believe He's the Son of God. The Muslims will talk about Jesus Christ, but they don't believe He's the Son of God. The Jehovah's Witnesses will talk about Jesus Christ, but they don't believe He's the Son of God, not in the way you and I do. The same thing could be said of the Mormons. You see, they can talk about Him, but what do we know? We know that the Son of God has come. How do we know this? Well, we know it by the testimony of the Word of God, that which we have seen, that which our hands have handled, which our eyes have seen, which our ears have heard of the Word of life. We know that this is not just cunningly devised fables, as Peter said. We know that this is the truth. What we have set before us here tonight, I believe with absolute certainty, uh, is the testimony of people that walked with Jesus Christ, that saw the power of His glory. I believe this is the result of men, uh, at least most of the New Testament is, men that saw Him before He died, saw Him on the cross, and saw Him resurrected in power and in glory. These aren't cunningly devised fables. This is eyewitness testimony. We know that the Son of God has come. What else do we know? And hath given us an understanding. Why did he say this? Because the Gnostics were claiming to have an understanding that this little group of believers didn't have. Can I say that all you'll ever need to know about God on this side of eternity is found within the pages of this book? No man can add anything that you need to this book. Uh, No man, no matter what feeling they've got or what dream they've had or what vision they may have claimed, no man can add anything above what this book says. It's the absolute truth. It's the absolute authority. God hath given us an understanding. He's given us the truth in His Word. Why? That we may know Him that is true. See, the Word of God was not given to give us an academic prowess, but to give us a personal relationship. I heard it put this way one time, that this is not uh, cake to be set under decorative glass. This is the manna from heaven, our daily bread. Not given just so that we could have more facts in our head, but so that we could have God in our heart and in our life. That's why God's given us an understanding. When we uh, refuse to embark upon that relationship and to uh, try to encourage and grow that relationship, we're defeating the very purpose for which God gave us His Word. God didn't just give us a Bible so that we'd have something to sit around and talk about in the church house. God gave us a Bible so that we could know His Son. God didn't just give us a Bible so that we'd have something to put on hotel nightstands. God gave us His Bible uh, so that we could know more of His Son. And so it says we have an understanding that we may know Him that is true, and we are in Him that is true. Who is this true person? And it says, even in His Son, Jesus Christ... The Word of God is deliberate. Every single word in your King James Bible is there on purpose. It's not there on accident. And John uses the terminology, His Son Jesus Christ, for a very specific reason, because it denotes the deity of Jesus Christ. 
It denotes the humanity of Jesus Christ. And it denotes the prophetic office as Messiah of Jesus Christ. All three of which were in dispute in his day and in our day. No dispute that a man named Jesus lived. No dispute that he taught good things. With a lot of people, there's even no dispute that he did miracles. But there's a lot of dispute today as to who this Jesus is. Is he really the Christ? Is he the Son of God? Is he God in the flesh? John says we know him, and we know that he is. Can I say that you don't have to have all the answers all the time if you know him. There's times when we feel as though if we can't answer every question, it's because there's something uh, shaky about our foundation. There's a lot of things I don't know. I'll go ahead and tell you that. A lot of questions I can't answer. But I know Jesus Christ. And I know that without a shadow of a doubt. Oh, are there bright minds that could stump me uh, in relation to the natural world and science and uh, science falsely so-called? I'm sure there are. And maybe with you, you've ran into a few of those people sometimes that gave you questions you couldn't answer. And it's unnerving to have questions we can't answer. But understand that no matter what they say, no matter what they think, no matter if they think they have an answer, we don't. It doesn't change this. We know that the Son of God has come. We know that we're in Him. We know that He's true. Of course, these Gnostics had questions that this little group of believers couldn't answer. But John says, I didn't come... Uh, to lower myself to the standard of trying to be a part of their dog and pony show and answer all their questions. It says, I've not come because uh, that you don't know. I've come because you do know. And I've come to encourage you in what you already know. Look at the next phrase. He says, this is the true God and eternal life. You know, if God says something once, it's enough. But over and over and over and over again, it's affirmed that Jesus Christ is God. He is the second part of or person of the Trinity. He was God in the flesh. He's still God to this day that we live in. A lot of people seeking for truth and seeking for answers. Don't you know that? Lots of questions being asked today. Do you know that as a Bible believer we have the answer? I fear sometimes we don't live that way. But the truth is we do know the true God. We do have eternal life through Him. The very last phrase he uses, and I'll just say a word about this in close. He says little children. He uses this term of endearment again that he's used earlier in the book of 1 John. And it's as though he's giving a fatherly admonition to this little group of believers. And if he could leave them but with one command, one piece of advice, it's this, keep yourselves from idols. Why does he say this? Because at the end of the day, any sin is a sin of idolatry. Do you understand that any time we choose to sin and to do wrong, it's because we place something above Jesus Christ. Any time that we stray from the teaching of the Word of God, it's because we place something above Jesus Christ. Oh, we don't whittle little idols of gold and silver and uh, wood and stone today. At least it's not very common to do that. But idolatry is just as rampant today. And the reason the Gnostics had departed is because of idolatry. And the reason there will be some that will tell you uh, that we don't have the Word of God, that Jesus Christ is not the Son of God, is because of idolatry. 
The reason some like Demas will uh, depart from us having loved this present world is because of idolatry. John says if we can just learn to put Jesus in His proper place, it'll straighten everything out. At the end of the day, anything wrong in our lives can be solved by putting Jesus in His proper place. You say, I'm having troubles in my heart, in my life, in my family, whatever it may be. If you'll put Jesus in His proper place, He'll straighten it out. You say, I'm having trouble understanding this or understanding that. Uh, Put Jesus in the proper place as you study the Word of God. Put Him as the preeminent one, and it'll straighten those things out. You see, really what they needed from the get-go was to put Christ in His proper place. I wonder tonight how many of us if we would be truthful, would have to admit that we've allowed some things to come between us and Christ and He's not been in His proper place. If that's true of you tonight, then I encourage you, before you do anything else, to find a place at this altar, surrender whatever that little idol is, and put Christ in His proper place.